Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will hear a familiar and sad tune from the Israelites as they once again raise a chorus of complaint against Moses and against the Lord. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. The title for the book of Numbers comes to us from the Greek title for this book, which is Arithmoi, where we get our word arithmetic, and it really is meant to communicate there are two uh, numberings or two censuses, if that's the way you pluralize census, in the book of Numbers. One at the very beginning for the first four chapters of numbering the, the nation or the people of Israel in the wilderness. And then one towards the end of the book, a second census. And what you see, and this becomes a pivotal book in the journey, is that the first generation had to die out before getting to the promised land. And we will find out, I believe, before we take our Christmas break, why that had to happen. So just stay tuned to that. It's a very important lesson. And, um, and so that's what happened. That's why it's called the book of numbers, because you have a census at the beginning, accounting, and you have a census at the end for the new generation before they are about to enter the promised land. Um, but we know that as we look at this book, the first 10 chapters, and Robert Whitehead took us through parts of chapters nine and 10 last week. The first two chapters are really the, or 10 chapters are the highlight of the book. And then everything spirals down from there. That's, it's like, um, as we think about even our lesson today, the chorus of complaint, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about a chorus of complaint from Exodus chapter 16. And does anybody remember what some of the subjects of complaining were for the Israelites right after they had crossed the Red Sea? Does anybody remember what they were frightened of or complaining about, if you can think back? Did I hear food? Water. Water. Yeah, so basic needs, concern that God was not going to meet their basic needs, not their greeds of what they want, but their needs of what they need. And uh, here again, we find a second verse to that familiar song. But it, what makes it more difficult and more painful is that God had been meeting their needs. He had provided this stuff called manna for them to eat. He had provided water for them to drink. And their discontentedness rose into a new verse of the chorus of complaint. So they're on the move, as Robert Whitehead pointed out last week. They're moving through this wilderness to an area called Paran, eventually moving to an area called Kadesh Barnea. Now, just so um, for you guys who are new, every week we know that any good Bible lesson for men includes a map. So, uh, so here we have this map of moving from Egypt to Canaan. And some, some views hold that this action is happening kind of in the middle of that, um, what's now called the Sinai Peninsula. Other scholars might say that somewhere farther to the east, this was happening. We don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that somewhere in this area, this moment in history was taking place. And so our structure for Numbers 11 reads as follows. We have the first offense. We have frustrated Moses. We have filling up. And then we conclude with foul, foul. I, I hope, yeah, thank you for laughing. I, I worked really hard to, to take care of that. So uh, let's go to the first offense, and we'll read the first 
few verses of Numbers chapter 11, making some some observations. And this is really God's warning shot fired, quite literally, we'll see, to the people for their complaint. So verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. We should note that that language, complained in the hearing, literally is in the Hebrew, was evil in the ears of the Lord. Because it shows that there is a, a heart issue that says, I don't trust you, God. I am not content with where I am, and I don't believe that you are good. That is why their complaint was evil in the ears of the Lord. And they complained about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. There's another, another interesting use of language here. In the Hebrew, his anger is kindled literally means his nose or his nostrils burned. And you know, at, at times when, when we get really upset and worked up or we've seen other, I mean, maybe we don't, but other people we know, right, get really upset or worked up, the, you know, the nose flares up a little bit. Do you know what I'm talking about? And when I was in Spanish in high school, we learned that there was a phrase of, uh, that, that, that people who speak Spanish would say, it's an idiom, and they would say, hasta las narices, which means uh, up until the nose, meaning I've had it up to here with this. And uh, God was hasta las narices in this instance, and his nostrils were flaming because of all that he had done for the people of Israel. And this is their response. For those of us who have children, maybe we can relate, but I'll keep moving. So uh, his anger was kindled, and fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. This was God's way of really firing those warning shots on the outskirts to say, you need to recognize your attitude and how you need to adjust it. So then verse 2, the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, uh, which means burning. And the idea was that this was to be a reminder burned in the memory of the Israelites to say, cease your complaining because God is good. And it was named Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, verse 4, the rabble that was among them. Uh, some scholars have noted that these are, are most likely foreigners who joined the Israelite group as they left Egypt, or maybe as they've journeyed along their way. Uh, another translation would call them the riffraff. But these are people who, who started the, the second verse of the chorus of complaint, at least initially. But it, it wouldn't take very long before the rest of the Israelites would really jump on board and start singing loudly as well with this song. Now the rabble or the riffraff that was among them had a strong craving. Now this is important to note. This word strong craving, literally in the Hebrew it says they craved a craving. Now, what I found interesting as I looked at some study on this word for craving is that in Genesis 3.6, when Satan comes to tempt the man and the woman with the fruit from the um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read that the, the woman looked at the fruit, saw that it was good, and saw that it was delight to the eyes. That's the same Hebrew word that's used here when these individuals have a craved a craving in the wilderness. In other words, it, they delighted in a delighting that was illicit, 
That was something that was not proper, that was wanton, that was not what God desired for them to want or have. Just like the woman who saw the fruit and craved it because it was craving or delightful to the eyes. Do you see the, you know, that sort of perilous connection that's going on with the temptation of sin and wanting to give in to that? So they craved a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept. So here they're, they're joining in the chorus here. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. <laughs> this is where you have to just laugh. We remember the fish that we ate at, uh, in Egypt that cost nothing. It cost nothing? <laughs> you were slaves? Your life was terrible? You actually didn't have this food. You probably just saw it and maybe from time to time had a bit of it, but it cost nothing? No, no, no. Your lives were hanging in the balance. The cucumbers, they continue on. It's, it's almost like a ridiculous re repetition or, or adding on a food. The melons, the leeks, the onions. Oh, and the garlic. I'd, I'd add that to my list, I'm sure. The garlic. <laughs> But now our strength is dried up. Literally, the text says our souls are dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. <laughs> oh, you mean this stuff that God provided so that you would have food, so that he could satisfy your complaint the first time? Yes. And we go on to read in verse 7, the manna was like a coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellum. Uh, our bedellium, and the people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and to make uh, cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of the cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So they almost had this um, substance that they would make from the manna. One, one author says maybe it's like an oatmeal or something. Um, we also read that it, it had a sweet test, taste to it as well. So they had grown displeased with God's provision. It's uh, kind of like I learned in economics, which I'm glad my dad encouraged me to take an economics class in college, uh, but the law of decreasing marginal utility. Does anybody know from economics what that means? Uh, some of you do. That means yes. It means the more you have of something, the less you like it. I've heard one guy say that even after enough, enough time, lobster tastes like soap, all right? So, <laughs> so that law of it, Bill says no, but that law of marginal decreasing utility had really hit its high point. And they said, we're sick and tired of this stuff, but yet God had provided it. And that was the sad part, is that they had such uh, ingratitude for what God had done. Well, let's see what happens to Moses as a result of this complaining. <laughs> Because I think we can relate maybe to Moses' frustration. Because here is what he then says, verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. This chorus was raising up. Um, and now, now Moses joins in the song in, in one sense here, okay? And it's sort of like that great ballad where you have a great solo in the middle of the ballad. I think Moses picks up the microphone here and starts singing a solo in this chorus of complaint with the background going on. Because um, as he hears this, uh, this complaining, we read in verse 10 that the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. Interestingly, this means literally it was evil in the eyes of Moses. So whereas their complaining was evil in, evil in the year of God, 
their complaining was evil in the eye of Moses. And this is where he grabs the microphone and he says to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servants? There's a bit of an emotional breakdown here, a bit of a pity party that Moses has for himself. And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? He goes into some birthing language here, all right? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, and as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Moses was functioning from a mindset of scarcity. Moses had seen God do some fairly miraculous things, had he not? All of the plagues, all of the crossing of the Red Sea, all of the provision of water and food and ways in which they were finding and would find some victory over situations where they felt they had defeat. And yet Moses operates from a mindset of scarcity. For they weep before me and say, give us meat to eat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. This burden is too heavy for me. The word heavy is also the word for glory. This burden is too glorious and weighty for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. As one author, uh, Jeff Mannion, who we'll hear from in just a moment, said, um, this land between these challenging times are fertile ground for an emotional meltdown. And indeed, Moses was having it. Now, God is very gracious. He hears Moses' personal complaint in the midst of the corporate complaint of the Israelites, and God provides very graciously a promise that he will appoint men. He asks Moses uh, to gather men and leaders to be elders and 70 in number, and God says that he will provide graciously a way through his Holy Spirit to help the burden that Moses was feeling. And so that eventually does happen because God wants him to know at the end of verse 17 so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God promises that he will equip other leaders through his Holy Spirit to help Moses with the burden of leadership. So now we shift to the filling up. And the filling up starts in verse 18. This is, by the way, a filling up, a promise to fill up physically but also a promise to fill Moses' own need for, for the leadership request that he had made. And we'll touch certain verses in this section. So verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. Okay, that's what they wanted. They will eat meat tomorrow. Great. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. God is obviously employing a bit of, a bit of sarcasm there because he, he's trying to point out that your complaining is needless and, and dangerous. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat that you shall eat. Now, verse 19. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? 
Last week, um, one of my friends, Brian Owens, who's often here serving and, and helping to collect money, he said, you know, I, I, I think about this, this account of what God promises to do with the meat that will become so sickening to them. He said, it kind of reminds me when uh, you'd hear the stories of a kid who gets caught by their parents smoking a cigarette. And what does the parent do? They make them smoke the whole pack to make them sick so that they won't go back to that, to that behavior. I don't know if that actually helped anybody or if it made them addicted to the nicotine. I have no idea. Um, but he said that, that kind of reminds me that God's promising, you're gonna, you want it, you're going to get it, and you're going to get it ad nauseum, that you're going to be so sick of this stuff. Now, notice that he doesn't tell them what kind of meat, and he doesn't tell them how he's going to provide, and that's, that's going to become integral to this. Um, what we find is that really they rejected the Lord, and that was the main problem with their hearts and their attitudes and their complaining. There is a, a Dutch scholar, and you, you know this guy is, is, is studly because I couldn't even find his first name. I could only find his last name, Marsing, okay? I, I mean, I looked it up, and all I could find was B as his first initial. I said, well, that guy, clearly he knows his stuff because he just goes by B. Um, he, he had this quotation that I thought was helpful for explaining the dynamic, dynamic of what's happening here. In ancient times, meat was eaten in Israel only on special occasions. In the wilderness, it would have been a very much a luxury. In any event, the offense of the demand for meat was just part of the larger offense of romanticizing the time in Egypt where there had always been an abundance of fish and fresh vegetables. Oh yeah, and the garlic. Don't forget the garlic. Um, they were saying, in effect, that the entire so-called deliverance from slavery had turned out to be one huge disappointment. So you can understand why God sent the warning shots of the fire. And now while he's going to say that there is going to be some further judgment because their discontentedness was a symptom of their deeper distrust in God and in his goodness and in his promises. And God knew that this problem had to be rectified. To say, why did we come out of Egypt was one of the ultimate slaps in the face of the God who had done so much for them to deliver them. So now we, we th look ahead to verses 21 and 23. Um, now, Moses, this is where Moses um, starts to, because Moses did not know how God was going to meet this desire of the meat. So we read in verse 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I am numbered, uh, I am numbered uh, 600,000 on foot. And we say that that was probably the number of men. So there may have been as many as 2 million people in this whole camp. Um, and you have said, I will give them meat to eat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them? Which by the way, they're in the middle of the desert. The sea was nowhere close. Um, and be enough for them? I God's response is so fitting. Because Moses just didn't know how this was going to happen. He was wrestling with his own doubts that God was going to do what he promised to do. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 23, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Meaning, is my source of power and authority limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. God basically said, watch me. I'm going to make it happen. 
So as we sort of fast forward through the next uh, few verses, 24 through 30, and we find that God did promise and he fulfilled his promise to give his Holy Spirit to people to help Moses with the burden of leadership. And they prophesy as as a remarkable evidence that the Holy Spirit was upon them and that God was equipping them to fulfill the leadership duties that he had given Moses. So he was filling up Moses' leadership need and he promised to fill up the people's desire for meat. And that is where we turn to our final section, yes, foul, foul. And we have some depictions of what this may have looked like. Um, Some scholars say that quail only really flew about three feet off of the ground. So to think that they were all covering in the air, that may be a little bit uh, fabricated. I don't know, but these pictures are not inspired. God's word is, so we'll trust this. But we read these following um, verses in verses 31 through 35. Then a wind from the Lord. That word wind, guys, is the same word for spirit. Um, And I'm going to make you pronounce it because it's one of my favorite Hebrew words because a lot of people think this is how my last name is pronounced. Sorry, Dad. Um, But it's ruach. Ruach. Say that with me. Ruach. You've got to get a little of that phlegm there at the end to get that that last part right. Um, Yes, my last name, our last name, Dad, has been pronounced that way. Um, But that's why it's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's the spirit, it's the wind, it's the breath. The same spirit that provided uh, for Moses' leadership needs would now provide for the people's physical desire and craving. A wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail. This is where you get the final answer of what kind of meat is it going to be? Because we have a clue going back to Exodus 16, I won't go there now, that indicates that quail would be a part of their experience, but... Here in the book of Numbers, this is the first time where we read that quail would be the meat that they would eat. And God brought quail from the sea and then let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side about the camp and about two cubits, that's about three feet above the ground. Now this is where some scholars differ. Did the quail, all of them stack on top of each other three feet high or is this a reference to the fact that they flew three feet off the ground? Um, Some of the scholarship is split. The bottom line is there's a lot of quail, a lot of abundance of meat that they can have. And the people rose all day, all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. I mean, they are rabid for this meat, right? They really wanted it. And it reminds me of what a a Walmart entryway would look like on Black Friday at like 6 a.m. when the doors open and you've got people racing all around to grab as much as they can. So those who gathered uh, lease gathered 10 homers. That's about 2,000 liters of quail meat. I don't know what that looks like. I don't want to know what that smells like. It was messy, but they got what they wanted. And they gathered uh, all of that, and they spread out uh, them, them out for themselves all around the camp. In verse 33, when the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. That's where the foul foul comes in here. You get that? Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means uh, graves of craving. So people died because of their craving or their desire for this meat. And because they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hezeroth, 
and they remained at Hezeroth, the next stop on their journey. Um, so in just thinking about this, we know in other parts of Scripture that this account is recorded. For example, in Psalm 78, which is an account written by a man named Asaph, or Asaph, he accounts the history of the people of Israel and God's working in their midst, and he chooses to include this account of the quail in his psalm, which reads, And he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate, and they were filled, well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But they, before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. So this was such an important event of, as one author says, cosmic um, treason against God that it's fit to include it in the rest of Scripture knowing that this was a significant moment of rebellion against God and His provision. So as we think about our applications, here are some applications that I want us to take away, is I need to apply God's Word in my life in these same exact ways. And the first uh, is a principle that I have learned and, and have to come back to, is that God always provides, and God's timing is always perfect. We see that the Israelites and even Moses operated from this mindset of scarcity, as I said earlier. Numbers eleven thirteen. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. And as I read that, I, I said, wait a minute. I have, that sounds familiar to some words that I've read in other parts of the Bible. And sure enough, the Israelites were not the only ones operating for a, from a mindset of scarcity. The disciples did as well. If you look at these two verses side by side, Matthew 15, And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? The scarcity of the disciples when Jesus said, Let's give them something to eat. The disciples say, We don't have this. That's not trusting in God's provision and not trusting in God's timing and operating from a mindset of scarcity. Moses would learn, the disciples would learn, and we too should learn that God always provides and His timing is always perfect. And maybe you think of some ways in your life, that's going to be one of the questions at the end, where God is provided in the perfect timing. Maybe when you thought things were, were at their end and God provided. There's a quote from Jeff Mannion from The Land Between, a book that I continue to find so helpful in my life where he writes, while we are traveling through the land between, God may provide badly needed money, but he may also provide contentment to live with joy and laughter while living without the extras. That, by the way, is not a very American approach to life. And I would say, guys, not a very American approach to the Christian life. But sometimes that's how God provides. If only we had the eyes to see it. If only I had the eyes to see it when I'm complaining. He writes, I think God loves providing exactly what we need at exactly the right moment. Whatever it is God loves to provide for us, providing is what He does. And He does it with intimate knowledge of who we are and what we need. He is concerned about us. 
then no matter what your challenge is, no matter what the, the scarcity that you may be dealing with, whether it's a financial or physical health-wise or relational, God is present and he wants to provide just what you need. Again, not your greed, but what you need. This is not a Janis Joplin, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Like, those are not the prayers to pray, okay? It's, oh Lord, provide what I need, not what I want. Um, and I'm not sure, by the way, how her friends driving Porsches, how she must make amends by getting a Mercedes Benz, but that's another issue. Don't pray the Janis Joplin prayer, all right? And if you don't know who she is, whatever, look her up. No, don't look her up. Let's stick to the Bible. All right. Um, some of you are just amazed that I even know at my age who Janis Joplin is, but that's okay. So, uh, yeah. so um, you know, God has provided most faithfully and fully through his son, Jesus Christ. And I am reminded of Philippians 4, 19 and 20, where we read, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that God provides our needs in alignment with the riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Not just out of the riches and glory of Christ, but in alignment with the riches and glory of Christ. Meaning that he will provide in our lives so that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Not so that we can just get what we want. And like I said, that is a hard pill for me to swallow as an American male. And maybe it is for you too. But it does not detract from the fact that God is good and that he always provides. And his timing is always perfect. And as we think about our spiritual poverty and our greatest need, he provided most fully by the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for our sins and to be raised from the dead so that we might have new life by faith in him. And if that is a truth that you would like, uh, you have not come to that place where you have trusted in Christ's sacrifice for you, I would have no greater joy than to talk more with you after this breakfast. And Friends online, I would have no greater joy than to, to meet with you and talk more about the truth of God's provision through Jesus Christ for us. Well, as we close, the, the final um, application is we need to correct our cravings so we crave correctly. I am reminded that God's, God and his truth should be our highest desire, our highest delight, our highest hope. I am reminded of Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed as the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And as I was talking to Dale yesterday, he, he was mindful and pointed me to Psalm 42. Right, one and two, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. Uh, do you hear that rich language of that deepest craving being God because the deepest craving is being met only in God? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The psalmist doesn't say, my soul thirsts for my sports team to have a great victory this weekend. My, my soul doesn't thirst for my wonderful home or my car. My soul doesn't even thirst for my family, as wonderful as a gift as that is. My soul needs to thirst first for the Lord. When shall I come and appear before God? 
In times of desperation, you know, where do you look to satisfy your cravings, guys? Hopefully, we don't look to the things of the world. In a final quotation from a former professor, Tom Constable, he writes, As believers, we must be careful of the strong flavors of the interesting and stimulating fare that the world has to offer and not imbibe these things too much. Too much participation in these things can make us feel bored and and lose interest in what God has provided for our spiritual nourishment, which may seem bland and unappealing by comparison. God's provision for our nourishment and growth, our manna, are His written word and His incarnate word, the bread of life. Which brings us back to a point that we had made several weeks ago about the manna, which means, the word manna means, what is it? The manna ultimately points to the true manna, who is Jesus Christ. And we ask the question, who is He? And Jesus answers that question in John 6, 48 and 50. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from uh, heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. That's why, friends, we find our deepest longings met in the person of Jesus Christ, in God himself, not in the passing things of the world that ultimately do not fully satisfy. It's only when we find our deepest longings in Jesus Christ that we are people that God wants us to be, not like the Israelites whose complaints uh, were found in their illicit desires and cravings, but a people who are transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we might be more committed to him and more dedicated to his mission here. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.